for the person with autism, I think it's as if much of life is conducted along the short-circuiting route of, of, of what I've described as a neurologically frayed wire. The wire through which the five senses travel, sight, sound, smell, taste, feeling, and by feeling I mean both physically and emotionally, that wire is frayed. It has a short in it. So therefore, sensorial things often reach us with a, with a great deal of static attached to them. You are listening to a Help and Hope resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries, a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to producing and distributing resources that offer help and hope to the hurting, especially the hurts that are daily and often unnoticed by others. Now, you can visit our website at markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C dot org, where you will find many free resources that address all kinds of numerous life crises, such as the loss of a loved one or suicide, adultery, adoption, chronic illness, help for military families, and many, many more. Now, in the studio with me is my wife, Sharon. Sharon, today's story is part of our series designated to offer help and hope to families and caregivers of children with special needs. So why don't you introduce our guests to our listeners? Thanks, Chuck. And it is my privilege to introduce Lori Seely as our special guest in the studio today. Uh, Before I tell you a little bit more about Lori's story, which has so many different directions that I would love to go in with her, I want our listeners to know that we are committed to producing lots and lots of resources that are going to encourage and equip families of children with special needs. We're calling this resource library an online sensory room, and anyone who is raising a child with special needs knows exactly what that is. But this is a place designed to give parents and caregivers a safe place to find someone ahead of them in the journey, someone who really gets what it is like to raise a child with special needs, who understands the challenges, and who will be a friend that helps to guide those coming behind them. We are confident that Lori's story is a key piece in this this online sensory room. We invited Lori to share her story because as an adult, she learned that she is on the autism spectrum. And 24 hours later, I think almost to the hour, she learned that her son also is autistic. So I think already uh, you are intrigued and we're hoping that As our interview unfolds, it'll be like salty peanuts. You'll want to hear more. And the more you will find at Lori's website, which is L-O-R-I-S-E-A-L-Y.com. That's LoriSeely.com. And it's packed with resources. Let me tell you a little bit about Lori before we start talking to her. She is a classically trained pianist. She regularly shares her story of almost being aborted graciously adopted and later abandoned. That's quite a story in itself. She has traveled the road of atheism and lives a life of autism. And along the way, she's wrestled deeply with doubt and through that wrestling has learned to rest in the precious promises of her faith. Her albums, Begone Unbelief and The Strife Is Over, give you a real look into her life journey. 
Laurie, we are so grateful to have this opportunity to share your story with others and especially to offer help and hope, the help and hope of your journey with families who are challenged with that diagnosis of autism. But before we dig into that part of your story, why don't you share a little bit about the circumstances of your birth? Sure thing. Uh, First off, it's great to be with y'all. You know, I kind of came crashing onto the scene of life under less than stellar circumstances. Um, My biological mom was a musician. She was actually a singer-songwriter, of all things, and ended up in an adulterous affair with a married man, Um, married man who had six kids, and they didn't have any plan on getting pregnant, but they got pregnant, and uh, when they found out they were Uh, They decided to abort me. I I think to them, terminating a pregnancy seemed better than him terminating his marriage. And I don't know, I guess stopping the heart of an unknown, unborn child seemed better than breaking the hearts of six pretty well-known and well-loved children. So they went to an abortion clinic and went in and and, uh, signed the register and sat down and, and waited and waited for almost an hour. A clerical error caused my birth mom's name to be skipped and another woman's name to be called. Uh, and that was part of the providence that allowed me to get here. The uh, the other part of the kind of cool providence in that is that as she waited, the memory of a Sunday school class lesson that she uh, just happened to sit in on about uh, 20 years earlier, a Sunday school lesson that she sat in on because she was visiting an out-of-town aunt who took her to church, which is a thing her, her family rarely did. The memory of that lesson rose up in her memory, and it was a lesson on the Ten Commandments. And uh, she said that as she sat there, the reality that thou shalt not kill and that she was about to kill roared across her conscience like thunder. She got up, turned to my dad, and said, I can't go through with the abortion. And she walked out of the abortion clinic alone, spent the next seven months alone in a in a one-room hunting cabin out in the deep woods of Sumter, South Carolina, waiting to bring me to term. Kind of kind of cool little side note, she said that as she uh, held me in the hospital, the nurse let her hold me for a moment. She prayed before letting me go that God would save me of my sins, even as he had, had saved her through this trial, and that one day I'd learn to love to play piano. So uh, here we are. <laughs> That is such an amazing story, and I I know that our listeners probably want to know more, and I've spent a lot of time on your website, Lori, and I love how transparent you are in sharing more details of this amazing uh, supernatural birth and that you were adopted, and then you became a classical pianist, and now you give concerts and you share your story widely through your music. It's amazing. I was especially touched by the note that you received on one of your birthdays, and I've asked if you would be willing to share that story with our listeners. No, I'm glad to. Uh, several years ago, I went to the mailbox, and there's a birthday card out there, and in it, uh, my birth mom had written... Lori, God made you on purpose. You are not an accident or an afterthought. You're not on earth just because, and you're not uh, a random act of his creativity, but you were given his 100% stamp of approval from head to toe before you were born, and the moment you were born, he beamed with joy, and I did too. And then it ended with, um, happy birthday. Love you. I just think, you know, when I read that, I thought about all the circumstances of your life and, and also the diagnosis of autism and the challenges of that, that being reminded by your birth mom of God's stamp of approval on you must be such an encouragement to you personally. Absolutely, it is. Very much so. 
Well, we have in the studio with us today uh, some very special friends of ours. They are parents of a young man who was diagnosed with autism when he was very young, and now he is an adolescent. And we thought, what a great opportunity for them as parents to be able to ask you some questions, Lori, as a person who lives with autism, is raising a son with autism, and, and what a different perspective you have. So we're going to turn over our, our discussion, our conversation to them. They have some really special questions for you. One of the things, Lori, that I'm super excited about today is the fact that when your child is diagnosed with autism, doctors and psychologists, they give you a bunch of resources, a bunch of textbooks or definitions of things, and everything seems very clinical and cold and sterile and medical. And as we've been raising our son, we've kind of come to realize that one of the absolute best resources is talking to someone who has autism, who can articulate what growing up with autism was like. And I feel like this is a, a resource that we can't put a price tag on. This is golden for us to be able to sit here and talk to you and pick your brain about what your childhood was like and how that has translated into your adulthood. So one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was, did you know that something was different about you when you were a child, when you were growing up? I know that you weren't diagnosed until later, but did you know that something was different? You know, that's actually a great question. Um, I can remember uh, as a young child, probably seven or eight, one day after school, uh, watching television. It was one of those ABC after school specials that used to come on. And in the middle of it, there was a public service announcement of all things on autism. And in this, in this public service announcement, they began to list some of the characteristics of autism. They were talking about difficulty with eye contact, and I was remembering how I had taught myself to make eye contact because it was something that was very painful for me. Uh, they were talking about sensitivity to certain sounds, and they gave us of the kid who was lining up their collection of cars. And as they said that, I had this box with my collection of pens, and I was lining it up on the floor <laughs> in the den. And I just remember looking up at the TV and thinking, that's me. And uh, then I actually ended up turning to my mom and saying, hey, mom, do you think that I could be autistic? And my mom said, no, no way. I think you're artistic, but not autistic. And um, it kind of ended there. But I always kind of knew that something was wrong and something was different. So, Lori, what I want to know is how exactly did you come to obtain a diagnosis for yourself? Yeah, you know, probably a little over eight years ago, I went through what I think can probably best be described as, as a spiritual crash and crisis. I'm a pastor's wife, and I'm a former atheist, and kind of out of the blue, I started really struggling again, honestly, with even belief in God. And uh, we began to talk to some pastors and some counselors to try to figure out exactly what was going on. Uh, there were other things where I was just kind of having trouble uh, just processing life and, and, and coping through life. And uh, we kept going and talking to folks, and nobody had any answers. People were thinking, you know, is Lori having an affair because she's having such great doubts about God? And I wasn't, and they couldn't find any secret sin that must be behind all of this. 
And I ended up at a women's conference where I was uh, actually leading worship in the midst of the struggle and had an opportunity to share a little bit of my testimony, which included the realities of having the struggle. And afterwards, the gal who was the keynote speaker was a biblical counselor. She said, hey, could, could we start talking some? Because I think there may be more going on here than, than originally meets the eye. And as we met, it's a long story, but basically she began to uncover a lifelong struggle with some external behaviors, internal manifestations, things that she considered to be almost prodigious savant-like giftedness. And she suggested that, um, you know, I think you may possibly be on the autism spectrum. And so that was sort of the first thing coming off of that crash where we began to realize, wait, there may be something physiological that actually is driving some of the emotional and spiritual crisis that I was going through. So how did you react when she told you that she thought you might be on the autism spectrum? Like, how were, were you relieved or were you upset? You know, honestly, I, I thought she was smoking crack. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my picture of autism when she first brought this up to me was, was kind of that of Rain Man. That had been really my only exposure, that old Dustin Hoffman character. I, I just couldn't picture myself as being Rain Man, even in spite of all the trials and struggles and, and difficulties I'd had throughout my life. You know, I, I really wasn't angry, but I think I was skeptical. And, and honestly, I kicked against the goads for almost a year before finally crying uncle, um, because all of this actually made sense. Um, you know, and now, uh, you know, seven years later, I, I think on most days I'd have to say that the diagnosis is, is a real relief uh, for me. Do you view your life as a, a timeline of pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis? Like, was that a, a defining moment in your life? Uh, you know, that, that, that's an interesting question. I think the diagnosis gave me a lot of answers to Many of the things that had just been mysteries about me, it, it, it granted some real understanding about the, the struggles that I had battled since childhood. So overall, it was, a, it was a really good and helpful thing. But, you know, I don't know that I necessarily view those things uh, in the light of pre and post diagnosis. There are definitely moments when I think, man, it would have really been nice to know, you know, back in the day why I was the way I was. But I don't think the diagnosis is necessarily the, um, I don't know, the continental divide of my life. I think that that clearly belongs to the day that I came to Christ. So I think the, the, the true timeline of events in my life is either pre or post conversion, more than pre or post autism diagnosis, if that makes sense. So do, so do you think that the diagnosis has helped you? Has it made anything in your life easier or improved anything? Or do you think that there are ways in which it's made things more difficult for you? <laughs> you know, that, that's a loaded question, guys. Um, it's improved my understanding. But I think initially, particularly initially when it happened, it also kind of opened up Pandora's box. I, I suddenly found myself kind of forced uh, to stare down things that I had, had, had sought to stuff and, and to stifle for years. Um, you know, that, that spiritual crash brought uh, with it, and honestly, it was probably bought, brought on by a, a coping crash. Um, my ability to camouflage and cover my disability had, had really fallen apart, uh, I think, from the cumulative effect of, of trying to hide my, 
for lack of a better term, my weirdness from the world. So the diagnosis corresponded with this onslaught of suppressed symptoms that were beginning to really surface beyond my ability to control. So I was dealing with the diagnosis and I was also being forced to really dissect every inch and angle of my existence in light of the diagnosis all at the same time. Ultimately, that has been a good thing. Though, if I'm honest with you, during the unfolding of those events, it was incredibly hard and I was not very happy. So in Sharon's introduction, she mentioned that you have a son who was also diagnosed with autism right around the same time as you, and you were having this cataclysmic experience in your own life personally. How do you feel like that affects or affected at that time your ability to parent your son on the spectrum? Autism definitely uh, affects my parenting. No way around that. I love my kids and I love them dearly, but I am not a nurturer by nature. Uh, Maternal things aren't really instinctive to me, but they're they're things that I have had to labor uh, to learn in order to become a good mom to the kids that God has sovereignly placed under my care. I think the diagnosis of having autism has helped me understand why being a mom is sometimes so much of a struggle. And and that's a good thing. You know, with parenting come many things that are just, they're unexpected, they're they're unplanned, things you simply can't control, you you simply can't foresee. And those kind of things can be a real anathema where autism is concerned. So at times the realities of my autism and the realities of my being a mom seem to kind of be on a collision course with one another. And I can get really frustrated at myself regarding the things that are such a challenge for me as a parent who lives with a disability. And then I have to remind myself that an all-knowing and all-wise God, you know, he providentially put these kids in my care. And for all of our good and and for his glory. So there's good and bad and there's difficult that comes with this, particularly I think where my neurotypical child is concerned, you know, where Josh is concerned, you know, there's some blessings in being a parent who understands the struggle. Uh, You know, while, while we are both uniquely individual where our autism is concerned, there's also a real common denominator of understanding between us that is probably very helpful. Um, the, the, the parenting is a challenge. Thankfully, uh, it is for all of us, whether there's a disability or not. And thankfully, we have, a, we have a gracious God. He hits balls with crooked sticks all the time, and I'm one of those crooked sticks in my parenting, you know. So, Lori, do you talk openly to your son about his autism? Do you even use the word autism with him, or is that a word that you try to avoid or, or trying to avoid labels how does that work for you and your family? Yeah, we do use the term autism. We talk about it very openly with Josh and, and as a family and uh, even in our, in our own church community. You know, we use the label autism. We're not afraid to say I'm autistic. I know there are some folks who really get kind of kind of bothered by that. It doesn't bother us. Autism is who, it, it's part of who God has made us to be. Um, you know, Exodus 4, Moses was talking about, you know, when they're, when they're dealing with Moses' stuttering problem, God says, who's made man's mouth? You know, who's made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You think back in John 9, when the disciples came to Christ asking, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's been born blind? The response of Christ was, it was neither this man or his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. I think that's been helpful in how we handle autism. You know, I I want Josh to see 
that the pen of perfect providence has been put to the page of his life, even where all the trials and struggles and ugly things of autism are concerned. So we talk about it. You know, I, I will say this. I know there are a lot of folks right now who kind of, there, there's sort of a move in this uh, neurodiversity movement um, to talk about autism as a thing that is to be celebrated. I, I'm personally kind of always surprised when I hear people talk about that. Uh, particularly other people who are actually on the autism spectrum who say, you know, I want to celebrate autism. Um, Sometimes I want to go, wait a minute, do you have the same autism that I have? (laughs) Uh, Because to be blunt in my life, much of autism is really, really awful and I don't like it and I wish it would go away, but it's here. It's a thorn that God's been pleased to prick me and my son with. And so I don't celebrate it, but I celebrate the Savior whose sufficient grace keeps carrying us through it. That seems to be a hot topic, and especially when I'm reading blogs of adults on the spectrum, it's a very me-centric kind of view of things. And as I'm raising a 12-year-old boy, I, I kind of have to blend that into how I parent him and the things that I tell him when he asks hard questions, like, why did God create me this way? A lot of what I read is that there are adults out there on the autism spectrum who they think that seeking therapy for something that's a part of who they are is it's pointless and it's offensive. And they believe that labeling themselves in that way limits them and puts them in a box. This is just a, this seems to be a huge topic in the adult autism community right now. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, That's an important question uh, at this point in time. Um, You know, there is a huge movement right now called the neurodiversity movement. And as I understand it, it basically, and I've got a lot of friends who are deeply involved and are huge activists in that movement. As I understand it, it kind of says that autism isn't necessarily a disability, uh, but it's really more just the difference in how things are processed and perceived neurologically. And I think that movement and many of the folks in that movement are really acting out of a desire to be, to be kind and to be compassionate because, let's be honest, people are often cruel and uncompassionate to those who have a disability or who are different. But, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of that movement, nor am I in agreement with the foundational premises because I, I think think that it really strikes, sometimes purposely, uh, though at other times kind of cluelessly, at the biblical doctrine of the fall and at the effects that from it flow. Um, You know, the Bible tells us that God created us male and female in his image, uh, our first parents, and subsequently, you know, all of their progeny. Our response to being created in his image was to revolt and choose to do things our way instead of his. And, you know, when that happened, sin and death, disability entered into the world. And, you know, we've been in a mess ever since. So, you know, in one way or another, we all enter the world broken and in need of redemption. Even if there's not a clear physical disability, we're all born with a, a deep spiritual disability, which should drive us to see our need of the deep love of God for us as it's seen in the, the life and death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf because of our brokenness. The neurodiversity movement seeks to say there's really nothing wrong. You know, we're just differently designed. And sadly, I mean, I've seen some who say that those on the higher end of the autism spectrum are actually even more highly evolved. (laughs) So there's kind of a pride factor that comes in there, uh, maybe because of some kind of savant type giftings. You know, here's the problem. The more we try to convince ourselves that we are all okay, the less likely we are to see that we're not okay. (laughs) And therefore, the good news of the gospel becomes 
irrelevant. So from a Christian perspective, I think that much of this movement can be very dangerous because it has the potential of, I don't know, kind of amputating autism from seeing the need for the one true source of hope and help in this life as well as in the life to come. You know, I I don't necessarily think that therapy or counseling is always necessary, um, but I think some therapy and, 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 and counseling can be very good if it's good counseling and therapy. Um, you know, for me, it's been good to have very wise people come alongside me as, as I've traveled this path, uh, folks who've helped me understand why I am the way I am, uh, but also who are willing to remind me to not make an excuse for sin because of my struggle. I really do think at the heart of this, it comes down to a doctrinal is- issue of whether we really understand the fall and its effects or not. And I think some of it is still, as Romans talks about, many, many, many members of mankind kind of trying to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and convince ourselves that we're all okay. None of us are okay. <laughs> we're all broken, and we all need a Redeemer. And Lori, that's, that's such a great answer, and I'm really glad to hear you referencing John 9 and talking about, you know, who sinned. And the answer was, you know, no one, the, these things happened that God's power would be made evident in this, in this man's life. And that's not a really popular message, especially in today's culture. Do you talk about this idea from John 9 and Romans 1, these doctrinal ideas, with your son? Uh, very much, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, th- those those things come up in family worship. They come up in regular conversation. You know, they come up when it's been a hard day at school. They come up, you know, when he's just had a meltdown after he's reset. Um, you know, my my great desire is always to put his eyes back on Christ, who's his creator, and who's his comfort. So there's a saying that when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Um, yeah. Is living in the same house with your son like having a kindred spirit because you share this diagnosis? Or does his autism present present so differently from yours that you have a hard time finding common ground? Do you feel like having this diagnosis yourself gives you any sort of leg up on parenting him? Yeah, you know, that's that's a statement by Dr. Stephen Shore, who really doesn't get the credit that he should get for saying that. Um, you know, there's definitely a camaraderie between Josh and myself. Um, it's funny, sometimes it comes up to me and kind of gives me a, a fist bump and says something like, you know, autistics unite. Uh, then he usually couples it with something like, introverts unite alone and in your own rooms hiding away from the world (laughs) he's really a funny kid you know the broad effects of autism those main headings that you would find in the dsm-5 things like the struggles with social communication interaction restricted repetitive behaviors sensory sensitivity josh and i have all of those things in common in the general sense the specifics are definitely individualized you know there are male and female differences in how autism manifests in us, as well as differences in what does and doesn't hurt in the sensory realm. You know, for Josh, if you slice an apple in his presence, he might literally go fetal on the floor because that's a sound and a vibration that's really painful to his neurological pathways, but that doesn't bother me at all. But the sound of somebody rubbing the hair on their arms can be utterly undoing to me, but he's completely uh, unaffected by the sound of hair follicles. (laughs) I think the leg up is that there is some increased understanding of things that the neurotypical parent may assume uh, is simply bad behavior. Maybe an understanding of what a meltdown or a shutdown feels like and of how hard it is to 
you know, to stop that runaway train from barreling down the tracks and crashing once it's begun. Hopefully, I hope that understanding brings with it some empathy uh, between Josh and myself. Um, you know, though, if I'm if I'm really honest with you, um, sometimes I think because I have learned personally to cope and compensate so well, I'm not nearly as patient with my son as I should be. Thankfully, the gospel teaches me to quickly seek his forgiveness when I blow it. And uh, by grace, both Josh and Elizabeth and, and my dear husband, Philip, are, are all pretty quick to uh, to grant forgiveness when I ask. How did you and Philip meet? Like, what, what was it like when you were dating and in, in the early years of your marriage? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I was working with youth at a church coast of South Carolina, and Philip was working uh, with youth up in North Alabama, And we actually met at a youth director's conference that our denomination has. We just hit it off. Good conversation. Um, You know, he's he's a good looking guy. Um, He was a godly guy. And I was attracted to him. Um, Our our dating was really unique. We got engaged on our 12th date. It took us four years to get there (laughs) because we lived eight hours apart. You know, in some ways, I think that process was really good for us. Our relationship was was forced because of distance to be really grounded and founded on learning how to communicate over the phone and through letters. And this was before cell phones and, you know, unlimited calling. You know, we were thinking about taking out stock in AT&T because of the cost of just talking. We were both very intentional in our discussions of marriage and about our desire to have a spouse who would love Jesus above all else. And I think that was providentially probably a really good way for things to play out for me in light of my unknown autistic way of working through things. You know, God has given me a a great, great guy. We've been married for 22 years. Philip is a man of of really deep character and of consistency. He's a sinner like all of us. Uh, But in spite of that, he's just been a really steadfast, faithful kind of guy. You know, we've had struggles. To be really honest with you, probably the toughest have been in the realm of, of, of physical marital intimacy. Um, you know, that, that, that physical one flesh aspect is something that's really hard for me as a person on the spectrum, as one who really struggles with certain sounds and, and, and tactile sensations. So, you know, two decades into marriage, um, you know, I look back and I realize the first decade, we didn't know why things were so hard for me where intimacy was concerned. You know, my desire really was to bring my husband pleasure. His was to bring me pleasure, but there just wasn't really anything pleasurable in that act for me. Uh, And that was really hard. It's still hard. It's still honestly probably the hardest aspect of our marriage. And that's a challenge even after the diagnosis. But we now understand why I struggle in the ways that I do. And by God's grace, we're patiently seeking to talk through those things and work through them. You know, all the conversation of the world doesn't change the reality of how my disability physically factors into this realm of marriage. But boy, I think Philip and I are both incredibly thankful for the grace of God that continues to meet us in our marriage. Um, He's given us a good marriage. And um, I really rejoice because I know sometimes the statistics for divorce can be can be high in in a home with disability. So God's been good to us. I'm fascinated by this part of your story, because our son says all the time that he wants to grow up and get married and have children. And I've always just wondered what that would look like for him to be in a physically intimate relationship. But also, when you think about for neurotypical people, it's hard enough sometimes to move into the same space and share the same bed and share the same bathroom. And 
Yeah, we still kind of laugh, you know, the the honeymoon night and just, you know, again, looking back now with the with the veil rent so that we realize what was going on. But, you know, there's some things now that we really laugh at. And Philip goes, how in the world did you push through that? You know, in our premarital counseling, we had uh, just some godly, godly counselors who told us that in our marriage, if we were committed to solving our problems biblically and looking to Christ when things got hard, we'd make it in our marriage. And I think from day one, uh, even the honeymoon night, um, just working through those hard things and going, okay, Lord, (laughs) how, you know, I'm called to love Philip more than I love me. Philip's called to love me more than he loves himself. We're both called to love you more than we love anything. And as by God's grace, we've sought to do that. Um, he's allowed us to hop over some really hard obstacles and grow closer together instead of being driven further apart. I mean, you know, things that could make you bitter, I, I've seen him use to make us better um, slowly, incrementally, not always obviously, but, uh, but faith. So, you know, there's, there, there's hope in that realm um, because there's hope in Christ. Do you, Lord? Do you think that your autism has affected how you, how you view God and your belief in God? Do you think those those things can can be talked about in that way? In the way I asked you that question. Oh, oh, big time, big time. Um, you know, again, I, I was an atheist before coming to faith in Christ. Um, there was a study several years ago by a group called PLOS One, it's the Public Library of Science. And in that study, they suggest that those who are on the spectrum are only 11% as likely to believe in God as those who aren't. Okay, in other words, that means that for every 100 people without autism who believe in God, only 11 people with autism will. And that's a staggering, staggering statistic to me. Realize that for the person living with autism, um, I, I personally believe there's a neurological and a psychological disconnect from what I would call, quote, end quote, the real of life. Think about this. That which is known and experienced as being real in this world is typically discerned through the use of the five senses. You think about it, we see a person, we hear a bird, we taste a piece of chocolate, we feel a hug from a friend, we smell a flower, and then we come to believe in the existence of that which we've just sensed, okay? Uh, One of the unfortunate disabling marks of autism is that there can be a really deep neurological disconnect in the way that the five senses work and process in our bodies. I mean, I think most of us realize that many people with autism can really struggle with different forms of sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell, right? For the person with autism, I think it's as if much of life is conducted along the short-circuiting route of, of, of what I've described as a neurologically frayed wire. The wire through which the five senses travel, sight, sound, smell, taste, feeling, and by feeling, I mean both physically and emotionally, that wire is frayed. It has a short in it. So therefore, sensorial things often reach us with a, with a great deal of static attached to them. If you think of a, of a frayed stereo speaker wire, you know, at moments that wire may be working really well, may allow the music to come through pretty clean and clear. Uh, but then if something shifts, then you might begin to get a little bit of snap, uh, crackle, and pop. There might be a lot of overwhelming white noise that gets in the way of the clear connection. And then just as suddenly something shifts and there's no noise getting through because the wire has shifted and gotten crimped and nothing's getting through. 
And I think that's a good picture of, of, of autism. Uh, you know, for many of us, a really good connection to, let's call it the stereo of life, can be pretty hard to ever find. Try as we might to connect with the things of the world, we always seem to kind of end up with that snap, crackle, and pop of, of the doggone disconnect. So to answer your question, if you transpose the scenario of the frayed wire struggle from the things of the physical world and you apply them to the spiritual world, if you think that that which is tangible is such a struggle, then how much more things which are intangible? Uh, if the seen is so full of static, then how much more of the unseen? And I, I think that gives an example. It's no wonder that those on the spectrum are said to only be 11% as likely to believe in God as those who don't. I, I know plenty of folks on the spectrum who who are um, practical atheists, adamant atheists, or who tend to go into maybe Buddhism uh, because it's something they feel like they have a little more uh, tangible control over. So, yeah, I, it, it clearly had an effect on my own atheistic past. So you were just talking about the example of the stereo and all the noise getting through. If a child or an adult on the spectrum is experiencing that kind of sensory overwhelm and they are entering into a, a meltdown situation, what is the best thing that someone, a, a random bystander or a parent, what is the very best thing that they can do? Good question. Uh, it's one that probably if you had 10 people in this interview, we'd probably all answer it differently. Um, so I do want to, at the, at the front, give a caveat. This is probably a very personal question to, to figure out how to answer. I, I think for me, I'd say, uh, maybe first of all, don't get in my face and, and try to fix it or make it stop while it's happening. Don't get mad or don't get emotional in the midst of a meltdown. Even when I'm going through a meltdown, I, I have a real awareness of my surroundings and of other people's reactions. And if you're freaking out, that can have an effect on how I'm already internally and maybe even externally freaking out. You know, if, if the person who's having a meltdown is in a place of danger, you need to do something to help. You know, if they're standing in the middle of the road when it happens, you may have to help move them physically to another location. But in so doing, you know, calmly tell them what you're going to do and then follow through with it as quickly as you can, even if that's hard. You know, if a meltdown or a shutdown is happening in a, in a public place, uh, if possible, I would encourage you to try to protect uh, your loved one's privacy. Um, you know, if someone's staring them down with that look of disgust that we sometimes get as parents, maybe you or your spouse or somebody else is with you, if they stepped over and explained to them what's happening. To be really uh, personal with you, I think in the worst of my own meltdowns, you know, I think what I've most often longed for is simply somebody who would just sit down with me, not to fix or fume or, or, or fidget. And I know as parents, we want to try to make it stop. But just to have somebody be calm beside me in the midst of my chaos until it lightens up a little bit. That's amazing. That's perfect. Because what I have noticed with our son is that when he is in the middle of a meltdown, he is also super tuned in to how I feel about his yeah. meltdown. And especially if that takes place in a public setting, and yeah. I know that people are staring at us, and I'm embarrassed because my child is not behaving the way I think he should behave. And that's me imposing that on him. And what I've noticed is that he is tuned in to when I am disappointed in him or I'm embarrassed by him. And that is like pouring gasoline on a fire for him. And 
I've learned over the years that what he needs in that moment is not to sense fear or embarrassment in me. I need to be the one who is still emotionally in control in that moment so that he can feed off of that kind of energy instead of, please stop doing this in public. Please, you're embarrassing mommy, you know? Absolutely. I, I think for, you know, for us to know that, you know, I'm, I'm unconditionally loved, even though I'm falling apart, I'm going to be protected and I'm not going to be judged. And, you know, that's hard. I mean, you know, I have spent much of my life figuring out how to hide those meltdowns. You know, I, I know when they're coming on, how to get out of a room pretty fast and how to you know get to the bathroom or wherever I need to be alone. I think part of that comes from the fear of how people are going to react and respond or or bail on me because I haven't lived up to the standards that I assume they may have imposed on me or expected from me. Um, but that, that's being a good mama. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. So you've written extensively on your blog about what autism feels like to you, especially in the sensory realm. What this is another personal answer to this question. What calms the noise for you? What's something that down regulates you when you're feeling overstimulated? Yeah. And again, I get the caveat that it, it is a personal answer because uh, things manifest differently in different folks. For me, stimming helps, you know, uh, those rockings you know, that we see. I often refer to stimming, and I think it's something that's often misunderstood, but I, I kind of often refer to it as almost being like neurological sweating. <laughs> Uh, you know, if you think about it on a really hot day, physically, when you start to overheat, you begin to sweat and you may be dripping moisture and you may really start to stink. And it may not be very pleasant for those who are around, but it's very necessary. I think stimming for those of us with autism is kind of that neurological sweating. When we begin to overheat, you know, when a shutdown goes to a meltdown or whatever, when we begin to overheat, our body begins to react with the sweat of the stem. And a lot of times parents want to kind of try to make that stop again because, you know, wait, my kid's rocking or my child's hitting his head or my child's flapping or, or whatever that's you know, finger flicking, whatever that stem is. But for me, those stems actually help me uh, settle and calm. So um, don't try to stop your kids from stemming. Um, you know, stimming helps, uh, time helps often. Now, it just has to run its course. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I know that as parents, we really want to just make it stop and make it better, but sometimes we can't. And sometimes we just need to patiently wait, even though it may hurt like heck <laughs> to do so. I, I wish there was an easy answer that I could say, well, if you just put that weighted vest on me at the exact moment, everything would be fine. You know, I've got a weighted blanket that I love. And it can help, but um, really the reality is, is when that when that avalanche starts, it's just got to go with the gravity uh, until it finally gets better. I think we've learned the stimming lesson the hard way. Our son, he has a, a little helicopter and he spins the blades, the rotors on the top of the helicopter. And we have gone on vacation and not taken the helicopter with us. And when by the time we get home after a week of being away, he really he needs to spend a couple of hours of quality time with that helicopter. And we've just learned that he is down regulating. He's he's coping. He's trying to help himself get over the stress of being away from home or being in the presence of other people or just not being in his comfort zone. And I, I think that's what an excellent point. 
so Lori, you were you were alluding to sort of uh, ways that help you, and then and then we were just talking about our son and some of the things that that help him. Was there any person in your childhood who got you, who really understood you, maybe at a level that that some of the other people around you didn't? Someone who supported you in in maybe ways that other people didn't. And if there was, in in what way did that person help you? No. <laughs> Uh, I wish I could say yes, but I, I think the, the most honest answer really is no. You know, I, I grew up in a home where my mom, who is an absolutely, you know, my adoptive mom was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant woman, but she suffered from mental illness and I often suffered at the hands of that which haunted her. You know, so life was hard at home. I was always really trying to hide this stuff because it wasn't accepted and it wasn't understood. So there really wasn't anyone who ever truly came alongside and, and got me. You know, I, I had a few teachers who saw my, my, my musical and you know what everybody calls these supposed cognitive gifts and talents and, and really encouraged me to pursue them. But my mom's paranoia really kept me from being allowed to get close to anyone. So there really wasn't anyone who truly was able to come alongside me during those days. You know, when I headed off to college, in God's kindness, the God who ordained ordains our steps, ordained that mine would pass with, with six Christians who were really radically different from any other Christians I'd encountered. It was probably the first time that I, I really ever was around some folks who, who just loved me unconditionally. Honestly, I think probably their presence in my life, their patient presence with me, I mean, that, that's, that's how I ultimately came to Christ. But no, I, I, I did a lot of this alone, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for, you know, I wasn't alone because God was with me. I just didn't have any clue he was. So... Something that our son says frequently is that he thinks that God created him wrong, and he wants to know if God will ever take away his autism and if he'll still have autism when he's an adult. Is this something that you ever struggle with? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a place that I think is very easy to go to. I think it's easy to assume that maybe God made a mistake, you know, when he made me, you know, because I, I'm so constantly in contact with all of the ugly things of autism. I have to regularly remind myself that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, the Bible tells me that a good God and a wise God, a, a God who knows best what I need most purposely knit me together in my mother's womb exactly as I am. You know, as I mentioned earlier, he did that, that the works of God might be displayed in my life. You know, the thorn in my flesh uh, and in your son's flesh, uh, biblically, it's not an accident. It has been providentially placed. Um, That's a biblical truth that I have to take my thoughts captive to on a regular basis And as hard as it is some days, it's a truth that I've had to make a choice to trust. And as I do that, I find that that really is an anchor that helps me find at least a little bit of joy along this sovereignly ordained autistic journey. I hope it will be for your son as well. This stuff's hard. You know, I I have to step back and go, Lord, I probably am going to have this thorn until I get home to heaven. Unless some unbelievable neurological breakthrough, you know, happens. And you may have to remind me of that some other time when we talk, because I may forget it. You know, I'm, I'm prone to wander, and I'm, I'm, I'm prone to uh, to forget those precious truths. We've not been created wrong. We have been created exactly as God saw would be best, even if that's hard. So, so Lori, what advice would you give us or maybe any other parents of children who are on the autism spectrum who are listening? What advice would you give us? The best things that we can do as parents— uh, trying to raise our children and help them 
become uh, become the best person that they can be? Uh, how would you answer that question? I guess in the horizontal, under the sun kind of realm, I would encourage you to, to take advantage of just the, the practical means that you may have for your son in your area. You know, if, if there's occupational therapy that needs to, be, to happen, you know, any of those social skills kind of services, you know, ABA, any of that kind of kind of physical stuff that you can help put in his toolbox so that he, you know, practically knows how to exist in this world once y'all aren't here, you know, which is something that as parents of kids with disabilities, we've got to struggle with. In the vertical realm, which really I believe is the most important, man, y'all, I just encourage you to continually, not in a Bible bashing, obnoxious way, but just in a very organic life living way, you keep pointing them to Jesus. Now, ask God to to help you love him like Jesus does. Pray to be patient with him as Jesus is patient with you. Plead with God that he would always see his need for Jesus. You know, never allow him to use his autism as an excuse for sin, but use his struggle with sin, even the autistically aggravated sins. Use that as a catalyst to take you back to that first challenge, which is to point him to Jesus. Now, your son, like my son, like all of us, we were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And, and, and that's the primary potential that I really try to stay focused on, because if that goal is grasped, then our sons and our daughters and we ourselves, man, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay here, and we're going to be okay into eternity. I, I told our son that we were coming to do this interview today, and he said, Mommy, you're going to talk to someone who's just like me. And I said, yes, we are. And we have lots of great questions to ask her. Do you have any questions? And he said, I do. I want you to ask Lori Seely, what can I do to glorify God and to be the best boy that I can be? Wow. Uh, first of all, I think the very fact that your son um, asked that question, uh, that he's concerned about that question, you know, that speaks volumes that he is probably moving in the right direction of accomplishing the goal of that question. You know, I think we make that, I think we make that answer very difficult sometimes in the church, you know, in order to glorify God, I've got to do some kind of great, big, wild, marvelous thing as we seek to love Jesus, to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength as we seek to love our, our neighbor uh, more than we love ourselves, which is something that can be really hard with autism because autism, it kind of naturally jacks up that selfishness that's in all of our hearts. As your son seeks to pursue those two greatest commandments, which every other commandment in the scripture is really just a fleshing out of what those two look like, what you know, loving God and loving others look like. As he pursues that, he's going to glorify God. So my greatest thing would be, even as I was point, you know, encouraging you as parents to keep pointing him to Jesus, I'd encourage him to point himself to Jesus. Love his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love his neighbor as himself. He can't do any of that without Jesus. So uh, just keep fleeing to the Savior who's sufficient to help us glorify God. Yeah. It's the only answer I can give. Laura, you you have given us so much to think about. And I know that our listeners, I mentioned at the beginning, we knew this interview was going to be like salty peanuts. They're going to be they're going to want more. And I want you to know, listeners, that you can go to lauriseely.com. That's L-O-R-I-S-E-A-L-Y.com. You're going to find on Lori's website so many great resources. She writes extensively. She's transparent, as you can already see that. 
Her music is amazing. Check out her albums where she has taken some of the old hymns and told her story, really, of um, the reality of faith in this broken world. As we're wrapping up our time, thank you so much to our friends for asking such great questions. And I know that uh, Chuck has one more question for you, Lori, before we close as a pastor. And uh, before he asks it, I just want to thank you personally for, for giving us your heart today. Oh, thank you for, for having me. Thank you for caring about this issue. Lori, I am approaching five decades in the ordained ministry. And over these many years, I have seen the best in people and I have seen the worst in people. And I know you and your husband are in the pastoral role, and you have had an opportunity over these years to minister the gospel to many different people in many different kinds of forums. I'd like to ask you now to speak as a, as a person concerned about the church's response to many of the issues that the church has to face in this ever-changing world and ask you what recommendations would you give to people in the church to help them build relationships with adults like yourself who are on the spectrum? Maybe what kinds of things make friendships or relationships difficult for you personally? And what should people not do? You know, as as for recommendations on on building relationships with uh, with folks on the spectrum, man, I think the foundational starting place is to care about adults and adolescents and kids on the spectrum. Because if you really care about them, then you're going to look for ways to connect with them. Uh, if you really care, then you're going to be willing to step into a scenario that may be a little bit uncomfortable. You're, you're going to be willing to try and learn about autism. You're, you're going to seek to understand how it manifests in the individual in your congregation or in your neighborhood. Um, it may mean asking them questions about their autism or asking their caregiver those questions. Um, so I think just just caring is the first thing. And if, as I say that, you think, well, I don't care, uh, then may I encourage you to turn to prayer <laughs> that God would help you care. You know, secondly, I think I think be patient, be persistent, ultimately just be present, even if that just means sitting and listening to you know, the verbal person with autism wax eloquently about some perseverative interest that you may not know anything about, and may not want to know anything about, but they really want to kind of ramble on. Even if it means, you know, just sitting on the sofa with a nonverbal person with ASD while they uh, simply stem or, or just stare, uh, you know, you don't have to be present perfectly. You just have to care enough to be there. And then let the relationship grow into whatever God would have it be from your willing heart. You know, to love those who are often left alone. You know, you're asking what kind of things make make friendships uh, difficult for me. Wow, if I knew the answer to that, maybe friendships and relationships wouldn't be so difficult. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I have no doubt that there are multitudes of people who care for me and care for me deeply, but, but I really do struggle in the realm of finding deep friendships. I, I have some, and I'm thankful for those, but because of my autism, I don't think that friendship for me is always, or often, maybe even ever, 
emotionally driven. I think it's more intentionally driven. God's word tells me that I'm to love my neighbor as myself. So when I enter into the start of a friendship with someone, there's a very real and determined process for me of thinking through what that means and what it's supposed to look like. And I think sometimes I can kind of overwhelm people, particularly Christians, as I seek to be an intentionally biblical friend. You know, not everybody is really keen on faithful or the wounds of a friend like I am. So my black and white understanding of acting biblically with others can sometimes cause challenges for others. That may be something that happens sometimes in congregations with with folks on the spectrum. God has been kind to soften my rough edges in this area a lot through the years, but I do think it's still a challenge. And if I'm really honest, even as a pastor's wife, even as somebody who's often in the public eye, as somebody who's around people a lot, if I shoot straight with you, I'm often really still very lonely. You know, as to what people should not do, I think don't try to make me neurotypical. (laughs) Don't try to fix me, but be willing to accept and embrace me as God has made me. You know, there's moments when I'm struggling and I would just say, don't try to push me to explain what I'm going through in the moment when I'm going through it. In other words, if I look like I'm struggling to communicate, I probably am. So um, just be kind of patient if I don't give you the answer or the reaction that you want me to have at the moment. You know, I I may be in the midst of a shutdown and I just need a little bit of time to reset in order to rightly respond. And I think the other thing that is helpful to understand is, is don't assume that because I or someone else on the spectrum Uh, Because we don't have the emotional reaction to something that you think we should have. You know, that doesn't mean that I'm mad or that I don't like you or that I don't care. As a person with autism, sometimes I process things differently than the neurotypical. And sometimes it can take me a few moments or or days or weeks or months or maybe never to really realize how some reaction of mine may have been read. And in light of that, uh, you know, I really want folks to not be afraid to come to me if they've been offended by some reaction that I've had. You know, I need to know and I want to know if I've hurt someone by how I've responded because I'm often clueless. And, and I think, again, the overarching umbrella that answers all of those questions that you just asked there, Chuck, is just care and care enough to figure out how to be a friend like Jesus would have you be. And, and I need to do the same thing. You know, autism doesn't give me an excuse for not being a friend. And man, I'm thankful for Christ who, uh, who gets us through all this stuff, you know. You have been listening to a resource developed by Mark Inc. Ministries. Mark Inc. exists for the purpose of offering help and hope to hurting people. And we like to address issues that maybe are difficult for people to talk about. And if you go on our website, you will see that we have touched many raw topics. And this one is especially raw. And hearing this interview and listening to these folks interact with one another has been a real blessing to me personally to sit here and see people of faith truly walking that faith in very difficult and trying circumstances. So I want to encourage you, the listener, to listen closely to the message that is being presented by Marking Ministries and specifically by this resource, that the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel, is what gives us the help we need. It gives us the strength we need to endure in some very painful and difficult situations. I too want to encourage you to visit Lori's website and find out more about autism and more about dealing with the issue of autism from a very personal and 
biblical perspective. So in closing, I want to say that I hope you will find the hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to give us our identity, the one who is our very creator, the very God of the universe, who has loved us with an everlasting love. And I would like to pray for you right now and pray for those who might be receiving this resource in, in the years to come. And I say, Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the peace that passes all understanding that you have promised to give us. And I thank you for that joy that is unspeakable and those riches that are unsearchable. And if there's someone listening to my voice right now, somebody listening to this resource who does not know you as Lord and Savior of their lives, that they would come to faith, that you would bring them to faith, that you would speak the gospel into their hearts, speak the truth of the gospel into their hearts so that they might find that peace that does indeed pass all understanding. Thank you for Lori, thank you for our guests, and thank you for the way in which they have asked some very hard questions. And we want this resource to bring honor and glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.